0: This is Due South, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Today on our program, we celebrate a local podcast with a national following as it hits 10 years of true crime stories. Phoebe Judge and Lawrence Ford stop by to reminisce about criminal. And it's bath time. That is a sound bath. Just an FYI, you can learn about the benefits of letting waves of sound wash over you. And indeed, I will be taking a sound bath here on Due South later in the hour. It's a great way to relax, and uh, you're going to learn more about the therapy of sound. But first, the concerning spread of a sexually transmitted infection, syphilis. Here to join us and help us better understand what is happening and what can be done about it is Dr. Arlene C. Senya. This is her field of expertise. Dr. Senya, welcome to Do South.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Very glad to be here with you today.
0: So syphilis is a serious but treatable bacterial infection. It develops in stages. If untreated, it can worsen. And this is an STI that expectant mothers can pass on to their newborn. I should preface off the top. If I've got anything wrong, please jump in here because I am not a medical professional. Broad brushstrokes to start. How much of a spike in syphilis cases are we seeing in North Carolina or the South or nationally? Just kind of contextualize this for us, please.
1: Sure. Um, So let's start with North Carolina. So fortunately for us, um, the rates of primary and secondary syphilis, and that are the most infectious stages of syphilis, have relatively been flat in North Carolina. Um, However, what we are seeing, of course, and, and we're seeing this nationally, is an increase among cases of congenital syphilis. So that's where syphilis affects the infant um, after uh, during birth or after birth, um, and that is a, a national trend that um, has been noted, of course, in the most recent um, surveillance data from the Centers for Disease Control. But one of the things that has been noted, of course, uh, more nationally and in, in certain uh, states, of course, is an increase overall in the proportion of cases of primary, secondary, again, infectious syphilis, as well as total cases of all syphilis um, occurring uh, between 2021 and 2022. So it is an alarming trend given that uh, rates of other bacterial sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea and chlamydia have either declined or uh, remain stable.
0: I have read that there has been a 755% increase, a 75 per increase. Uh, a a seven-and-a-half-fold increase in the past decade. That struck me as as a gargantuan jump. Is that just huge, or is that something that we will occasionally see with public health issues?
1: So what you're referring to is uh, the 750% increase in congenital syphilis cases. I believe that's over the past decade from 2011 to 2021. So as you said, that is gargantuan and clearly a public health concern. Um, And so this has really, um, you know, alerted, um, you know, local, uh, national, and and even globally, uh, this rise in congenital syphilis cases is not just felt in the U.S., but is a concern from a global standpoint. Um, And it is a call for action, uh, meaning that we need to do better as far as um, screening uh, women in their pregnancy, um, as well as, uh, you know, other things we'll talk about during this podcast.
0: So congenital, if I've got it right, that means that the the trait the infection is present at birth. Uh, in this case, as we're thinking about syphilis, it's being passed down from the mother to the infant. Uh, is that right? and what are the the biggest risks uh, for a newborn who is uh, emerging with syphilis?
1: Okay, so first, let's start with a um, infection in the mother. So um, One of the uh, rates that we've been seeing uh, a steady increase are cases among uh, heterosexual women. Um, So historically in the past, and I do need to go a little bit more historically, is that the fact that we started to see syphilis rates increase uh, in the 1990s, uh, predominantly among men who have sex with men, but now what we're seeing are increases among heterosexual women who are, um, you know, perhaps getting uh, syphilis through their, obviously, multiple sexual partners. And there's other issues that contribute to that, like, for example, uh, lack of prenatal care or delay in health care, delay in testing, delay in treatment. Mm -hmm. So what happens with this uh, bacteria called Treponema pallidum is that it can then uh, spread through, of course, um, the blood of an infected mother, uh, cross through the placenta and then cause infection in, in the infant or the uh, uh, fetus or neonate. And um, most of the transmission that is of greatest concern uh, would occur probably in the first trimester. So that would be from a woman, the greatest risk would be from a woman with primary or secondary syphilis. Those are the early stages where that you have the highest burden of infection and, and bacteria in the blood. Um, being transmitted through the placenta. So, to get to your uh, question, what yeah. are the manifestations of congenital mm-hmm. syphilis? So, an infant um, at birth may um, then have issues regarding developmental delays. There could be deafness. Um, you know, the more serious concerns would be uh, stillbirth. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. so those are uh, you know issues that that women face who are are not treated appropriately. Some of the other manifestations of congenital syphilis are rashes, um, you know, swollen lymph nodes, even swollen uh, liver and spleen. So in any case, congenital syphilis is associated with a high mortality, and it is uh, obviously, as we're talking about today, uh, should be preventable.
0: Dr. Arlene Senya is with us here on uh, due south, she is a doctor, a professor of medicine at UNC's medical school, and a professor of epidemiology at the Gillings School of Public Health. She's also a consultant for the CDC Sexually Transmitted Diseases Treatment Guidelines, and we are discussing uh, a rise in syphilis cases, uh, a national trend, and something that uh, is also being reported on recently uh, here in North Carolina. Uh, I'd like to uh, talk about screening in a moment first, prevention. Uh, How preventable is syphilis and is contraception the the best or the main approach? Sure.
1: Um, I think there's many things that uh, a woman can do to help prevent from getting syphilis. And then, of course, there are preventive measures that we might want to think about from a public health standpoint. So from an individual standpoint, obviously, a woman should avoid um, having unprotected sex with multiple sexual partners, avoiding having sex with, um, you know, uh, partners who are uh, perhaps injecting drugs or at high risk themselves, uh, which means like uh, history of incarceration, um, you know the partner having multiple sexual partners himself. So um, that's important for a woman to know her own risk. Obviously, condom use is important um, and, and the preventive component is really just trying to make sure that uh, there's appropriate prenatal care So that means that a woman who's pregnant should get care, of course, early on because it is actually um, uh, part of mandatory law that women in their first trimester, uh, you know, actually be tested for syphilis. Mm -hmm. And so that is a a, um, practice that should be um, uniform throughout all states and, and certainly women who are at high risk should be screened again. At 28 weeks of pregnancy and at delivery, so there are opportunities to. And I know we talked about prevention. Now we're talking about screening, Mm -hmm. but they sort of go hand in hand. Is that prevention means, you know, essentially being aware of your risk, uh, you know, practicing condom use, but also making sure that you get appropriate healthcare, um, and and screening and testing, as we as we we talked about.
0: In your work as an epidemiologist and. a a professor of medicine, Uh, you have worked on a vaccine to prevent syphilis. Uh, I'd love for you to just give us the abridged version here. Where do things stand uh, as it pertains to a potential vaccine to syphilis?
1: Yeah, Jeff, that's an excellent question. Um, So um, there are many things that we in public health have tried, uh, obviously, to reduce syphilis rates uh, nationwide and globally. However, um, as with most infectious diseases, um, you know, what we need are uh, stronger biomedical interventions like vaccines. So uh, fortunately, the National Institutes of Health um, have provided funding for uh, different uh, university collaborations to work on a syphilis vaccine. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we are still at the very early stages. So meaning, uh, you know, conduction of basic and translational research, we need to understand more about the bacteria. We need to understand what um, kinds of antigens or proteins are on the surface of the bacteria that can elicit a protective response in individuals who are vaccinated. Uh, We also at this point need to talk about acceptability of a future vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that goes hand in hand. In In addition to finding the right candidate from the basic science standpoint, we will then need to think about what does that candidate vaccine look like? Should it protect for more than one strain? Sure. And is it, will it be acceptable to the you know individuals that we want to provide the vaccine for?
0: So just a final moment here in 30 seconds or so, what is the treatment for syphilis uh, presently?
1: Uh, the treatment for syphilis is penicillin. It's a benzetine penicillin, which is an injectable Um, However, what we have found nationally is a shortage of benzathine penicillin. It's 95% effective, but the shortage is actually making it difficult to provide treatment uh, for all individuals, and we need to prioritize pregnant women.
0: Dr. Arlene Senya is a doctor, a professor of medicine at UNC's Medical School, as well as a professor of epidemiology at the Gilling School of Public Health. She also serves as a consultant to the CDC's Sexually Transmitted Disease Treatment Guidelines. Dr. Senya, thank you so much for joining us here on Do South.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It was my pleasure.
0: I'm Jeff Tiberi, reminding you, of course, to catch up with other conversations, segments, and healthcare, political, and uh, race and Southern culture coverage at our website, DoSouthRadio.org. Here on South, we'll return in just a moment and we'll speak with uh, a couple of former WUNC staffers who created a true crime show now a decade ago. Stay with us. This is South on listener-supported North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. This is Due South. Welcome back. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Ten years ago, three producers at WUNC started a podcast.
2: I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal.
0: From obscure historical crimes to people who are finally coming to terms with the most extreme moments they've lived through, Criminal is a podcast about true crime. And as they like to say, it tells stories of people who've done wrong, been wronged, or gotten caught somewhere in the middle. Phoebe Judge is the host and co creator of the podcast, both Criminal and This Is Love. Phoebe, welcome to Do South. Thanks, Jeff. And Lawrence Four is co creator and creative director of the podcast, Criminal, as well as This Is Love. Lauren, glad to have you here with us as well on Do South.
3: Hi, thanks for having us.
0: Uh, 10 years. Does that feel about right? Is that like, was that a flash? Uh, size up these last, last 10 years for us.
2: You know, we, we talk about it all the time because in some ways everything is totally different. You know, we started out with just a couple of us and now we have, you know, 10 or 11 people who work on the show. Most of them are not even in North Carolina, North Carolina anymore. They're in New York. But every day uh, we kind of are in a situation where it feels like we're right back at the beginning, which is me and Lauren, you know, arguing over one word in a script, tearing our hair out, and and just trying to make the best thing we can possible. So it's it's very different and also very much the same.
0: And I will note, I'm homesick today with uh, I'm Not Sick... Uh, I've got a two and a half year old who's running a little bit of a fever. So I'm in my closet surrounded by mesh wear and collared shirts. And that's where you all begin as well uh, for for part of your production. Do I Am I remembering that right? It was a closet where some of yeah. this uh, came to fruition.
2: The first episodes of Criminal were Lauren's closet.
3: <laughs> yeah. In Durham, uh, you know, with like quilts hanging over the door. We were just looking at old pictures of sort of a it's like an unmade bed. It like looks absolutely like a, like a bunch of college students or something. Um, but Jeff, I like your use of the term meshware. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I want to go back to the beginning. Uh, tell me where this idea came from. And if it was like a you know, snap of the fingers, oh my gosh, like light bulb goes off in the shower. I like to say I, I do my best thinking in the shower. Uh, or if it was something you had been, been thinking on for a long time, where did, where did the idea for Criminal originate?
2: Well, you know, Lauren and I met at WUNC, and I still call Criminal a radio show. You know, I'm, I'm most happy in a radio station and, um, and saying I have a radio show, not a podcast. So we were both working at WUNC on a, a show called The Story with Dick Gordon, and um, I was guest hosting a bit, we were both producing, and Lauren and I were working really closely together on that show. And when that show went off the air, that night, uh, we were sitting outside on on my porch in Chapel Hill, and we kind of looked at each other and said, well, now it's our time to to start our own thing. And no one will tell us what to do. And no one will tell us what stories we should be doing. We'll tell the stories that we want to tell. And our only our only criteria is that we're curious about them. We'll never tell a story again that we're doing just because someone thinks we should be doing it. And so we were sitting there, you know, kind of thinking about what that would look like. And Lauren said, what about a show about crime? And I looked at her and I said, well, that's the smartest thing I've ever heard. We're never going to run out of stories.
3: And at that time, there was no, this was before Serial. And in, in sort of my, I had been a producer at NPR for a long time before coming to WUNC. And for whatever reason, my experience in public radio was that we didn't do crime stories. It was it was sort of perceived to be sort of lowbrow or something. And I remember around this time, I was reading a lot of Raymond Chandler novels, and I, I would absolutely stay up all night. Like, I could not put them down. And I was sort of thinking, like, what is it about a crime story that makes it so unbelievably compelling to our imaginations? And I was thinking, what if we could bring our public radio sort of training um, and our sort of ability to contact strangers and ask them if they'll talk to us about their lives. What if we did that with crime stories and we did it in a really sort of respectful way? And it really felt like no one was doing that then. And and it felt like, hey, we, we actually have the skills for this and we have the energy. So like, let's try
0: it. So Lauren, you have this wonderful idea. Did you realize that you had, and I hesitate to use the word perfect, But the near perfect voice with the near perfect cadence for this podcast, because if 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 this were a sports or a politics or a weather uh, gathering of, of stories like I don't know if Phoebe's cadence and delivery works quite as well. But with crime, it's just like it's perfect. Did you know that? How early did you know that?
3: I think we. I did know that. I think. Also, I just as a side note, I would do anything to hear her do a sports broadcast. Well, I'd like to do weather. <laughs> I think.
2: I think I might be a good weatherman. I think you'd be good at calling a baseball game. I'd like to watch that. Well, that you know, that's my. Do- it, that is anyone we'll make it the Dur- happen? The Durham, Bulls. the Durham Bulls, just one night. I'll pay you to do it. Just one night.
3: <laughs> um, no, we knew that there was. There's something sort of restrained about. Phoebe's personality that's genuine. Like, she didn't grow up watching a lot of television. She's not sort of like – she doesn't have that sort of like what we call internally a sort of like, hey, guys, podcast energy. And that felt really perfect because we weren't trying to make something that was like anything else that we'd heard. We wanted to make something that was restrained and sort of uh, elegant and sort of pulled back, and not about the host, really. Um, and some of our favorite episodes of Criminal, and we say this all the time, are the ones where you hear her the least. You know, this isn't about her personality. This isn't about her opinions about crime. The show is not about sort of like Phoebe explaining the world to you. This is about the people that she's interviewing.
0: So you start this podcast in, if I'm remembering correctly, fall of 2014, because the story was canceled. The story with Dick Gordon, I believe, was ended, sunsetted, canceled, whatever word y'all want to use is fine by me, um, fall of that year. And you have this idea and you bring it forward. At what point did you think you were onto something or maybe even know you were onto something? And my only brief backdrop of context here is that there were at one point like two and a half million podcasts in this country there was just there was an abundance. There there was too much in the marketplace just from the sheer numbers of supply and demand. When did you know you had something and it could be something?
2: Well, I think you know the the good thing about about the way we started the show is that we never started the show to be popular. We never started the show to make dough. You know, I, I was still I was still on the air every day at WUNC, and I'd get off, and then I'd go to Lauren's house. and We make the show, and for us the fact that we were putting out stories that we were proud of was enough. It really was enough. And we took it really seriously. But that's all we wanted to do. And, you know, as as we mentioned, you know, we started before Serial and Serial really helped every podcast It put mm-hmm. podcasts on the map. But, you know, when what would happen is Serial came out and it was this gigantic hit and there started to be these articles that said, you can't get it. You can't get enough of Serial, try Criminal until the next episode is out. And so people then came to Criminal. And we started getting listeners and more and more listeners. And then we started getting a sponsor. You know, Audible was our first sponsor. And at one point, we looked at each other and said, well, maybe it's working. Maybe this thing actually is where people like this thing. And we had no expectations for what that meant, really, except that it was finding an audience of someone who appreciated maybe the time and effort we were putting into these stories and realized that we were trying to do something different with crime. We were trying to take a different lens to crime as a response to the crime reporting that we were seeing out there, which, frankly, a lot of it's horrible. It's horrible. And we wanted to do everything we could to be the anti-true crime podcast, you know, to tell it in a different, more humanistic way. And eventually we just realized that we were finding people who appreciated that. But, you know, we didn't quit our day jobs for like two years.
3: Like sometimes people are like, how do we like sort of what tips do you have? And I don't really know what to say because we were obsessive. And, you know, we, we were both working full time and then doing this podcast at night and on the weekends, and we would meet at 6 a.m. before we went to work. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that everyone would, would want that or would maybe argue that that's a healthy way to live your life. But it was it was so exciting to realize that we could do any story that we wanted. You know, after, you know, our whole sort of careers in working in radio, you would you would pitch your story ideas, and they would get a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And the idea that there was no one to thumbs down, something that we were curious about, felt incredible. Um, and so we were just, we just wanted to do the absolute very best stories that we could, and we didn't really care if we didn't get paid.
0: Um, kind of a generic question here, but if you would, uh, from each of you, give me an episode that stands out, favorite or not, most memorable, most controversial. I, I, I mean, you've done, I suspect hundreds of these uh, in total, but give me one, maybe even two, that linger for you, and of course, tell me what it was about, and maybe why it lingered.
2: Well, this is a this this is a moving target. This question because it depends <laughs> on the day. But uh, you know, I'll, I'll go first. And right now, uh, one of my favorite episodes is called "Off Leash." It's about a woman who was uh, training dogs, working with incarcerated people um, to help train dogs, and uh, fell in love with one of these men, and. Um, And she ended up smuggling him out of uh, prison in a dog crate. Uh, And for me, the story is wild. But also the way that she was able to talk about this experience and how she got herself in this position. This woman had no record. She'd never been arrested. She'd never done anything wrong. But she got herself into the situation, and then she realized she was in over her skis. And the humility that she talks about, you know, what she did and just her complete openness. It's its a fantastic story. It's called Off Leash. Another story that I've always loved is a story called Triassic Park about the theft of petrified wood from a national park and the way the national park used guilt to try to make people stop stealing and a curse. I, that's a real – when I, we, we talk about a, a real criminal story, that's a real criminal story. So those are two that stick out to me
0: that's <laughs> and that's one of my favorites I, I love that podcast yeah. that's and how many years just remind us is that like 20 I, that was oh that's er, that is yeah.
2: early early that's episode 23 that's way back to the beginning okay one of my
3: favorites I've been thinking about is um it's an episode called the doctors and it was it just felt like a real gamble we just called three trauma surgeons across the country and said you know like what happens to someone's body when they're shot um and we found these doctors who were unbelievably open. And I think that, you know, it, it It was, I was really proud of it because it felt like a sort of different way to think about gun violence because it stayed very specific on what do these trauma surgeons know about what a gunshot does to the human body. And they described it in such, they described the way it affects them in their profession and the way it affects everyone in a hospital. And it sort of, um, it, for me, it made it so I, I couldn't sort of turn my head away from something that's painful to think about. And and I thought that that, there's very little of Phoebe in that episode. It's really just these doctors sort of in almost a collage describing this aspect of their work and, you know, this part of our lives that we, I think, try pretty hard not to think about in detail. I like that episode a lot. And then one that we did last year was called The Most Wonderful Terrible Person. And it was about this woman named Deborah Miller, whose mother was convicted of murdering her father in the 60s in California. And then Joan Didion wrote an essay about the murder trial. And so Deborah Miller talks about what it's like to have your family described by Joan Didion in in Slouching Toward Bethlehem and, and to sort of be the real person behind this like sort of iconic piece of writing. Um, and she said she grew up hating that essay and hating Joan Didion and that it was only sort of as she became an adult that she could sort of see it through adult eyes. And I, to me, that was a really great criminal episode because it's sort of it's not about the crime. It's about people and the the way that we sort of how the way that we talk about crime tells us who we are, you know.
0: Lauren and Phoebe are here with us talking about Criminal, the podcast that they uh, created and have uh, built and uh, massaged and created into this uh, wonderful bit of audio storytelling across the last 10 years. We're here on Do South chatting about it. And we're going to play an excerpt from an episode uh, that is all about somebody who sold a haunted house. I want to get back to some of the um the efforts and the, and the ways in which you have teed up criminal in a moment. But first, we're going to listen to this cut uh, from a Haunted House episode of Criminal.
2: Jess Stambowski sued Helen Ackley, arguing that all of Helen Ackley's ghost stories, which he said he had not known about before signing the contract, threatened the house's property value. The court dismissed the complaint, noting that Helen Ackley did not have a duty to tell the Stambovskis about any ghosts.
0: New York had long applied the rule of caveat emptor. Caveat emptor is a Latin phrase that means let the buyer beware. That's a clip from an episode of the podcast Criminal. It's all about somebody who sold a haunted house. And I want to go back to something that you noted earlier about an effort to not be gross with your true crime. This is something that I when I've listened to your podcast it has found deliberate uh you it has seemed deliberate to me and you all pull on threads of uh, guilt and duty and things that I think are maybe more relatable to a wider range of people right like we've all seen the news and we can you know, we can talk about a shooting or a you know some gory thing but this is less gory uh tell me about the effort to be not gross your word gross
2: Well I you know I think that Lauren and I one of the reasons this show has worked or we've worked so well for the past 10 years is that I think we both have a, a rather common life view that we don't really believe in in good and evil. You know, we don't believe that people are just intrinsically bad. We think that people do horrible things and get themselves in horrible situations. And from the beginning, all we've wanted to do is figure out why people do the things they do and also to, to realize that really none of us are better than any other, you know, that that we can all find ourselves in situations that we never expected. And so because of that, you know, we've, I think, taken this look at crime of trying to really figure it, not just say someone's bad, you know, not just be able to put something out there and say, well, look, we showed you they're a bad person. Done. You know, but rather try to talk to people, try to explore and figure out life situations. And in doing that, I hope have some empathy for just the human experience, but rather what we have always wanted to do is to is to have a reverence for the subjects that we're talking about, but also to understand that when you're telling crime stories, people have been usually affected in horrible ways. And to always understand that Someone could be listening to this story that we're putting out who has been affected by this. And it isn't just entertainment, that we have a responsibility, and we've taken that very seriously for for a long time.
0: I want to jump in, and there's one other thing I'm going to ask. This is a bit of a curveball, and I'll give you, I don't know, a minute or a minute and a half to regale us with this story, if you'll indulge us. I'm going way back in the time machine here. But I was getting ready for this interview, and I thought, oh, I, I remember I remember Phoebe telling me about kind of like a wild thing – I thought it was wild uh, – that happened years ago. You took criminal on the road. If memory serves, you were in Northern California. You had a, perfor- a performance. You had a, a, an event, and you got quite ill, but this was in kind of the <laughs> ascent, the rise of criminal – and you would not be stopped from getting on that stage and, and speaking to and sharing a story with some of some of your fans.
2: She was green. Oh, boy. The, the, show. the oyster. <laughs> it was the oyster. I, I, you're exact thank you, Jeff, for bringing because we're about to go back on tour. So I just I hope this can happen again. I can show my my grit. Um, <laughs> but you know, we we were in San Francisco. I had had an oyster, and uh, a few hours later, it was time to go to the theater, and we marched in. And I said to Lauren as we were about to walk in the door, I said, I don't know, I, I something's going on. I can't figure it out. And we got backstage, and it was the only theater on our whole entire tour where there wasn't a bathroom in the green room. The bathrooms are rather just around the actual theater, and so and they're the public bathrooms, bathrooms. Public to be shared with everyone, and the audience. S- so Lauren and I are on stage doing a sound check, and things are turning south. Real bad, I can just tell. And all of a <laughs> sudden, it, I'm overcome with this sickness, and I realize I have to get to the bathroom as quickly as possible. And so I just leave the stage. All the sound people are there, and the lighting people, and I'm am talking mid sentence, and I just dart off the stage to the to the women's bathroom, and I try to open the door, and it's locked. And so I, I in in now a whole s- crew was men. There was no. There were just we were the watching, only women they in were the building watching us. And then I, so then I have to storm to the other side to the men's bathroom, which is open. And I open the door and the minute i open the door it's a it's an it's an explosion it is a it is a projectile experience and uh, I, I turn around i come out and i've now i've really just i've just grown up a lot and i come out of the bathroom and everyone's staring at me and i realize that people have already started to line up around the theater to to get in to the show they're excited and i got i've got to figure this out and i'm now covered in the oyster and so i find a, a it was a it was a three XL shirt. I know it's a very large shirt that said I'm Phoebe Judge's criminal and I put it on and I get myself to the CVS next door where someone's called in a prescription and I rock at the blood pressure machine with a coke and some saltines trying to keep this medicine down and I take myself back and I put on a dress I lock my knees and I do the show. The show must go on and Morn I think is looking at me at any minute thinking, "Oh boy. What what if this projectile situation happens all over the first two rows?" But we did the show.
3: Her face was, like, damp the whole time. And then, as I recall, someone in the front row vomited mid-show. That's, and that so. really
2: almost threw me over. That was the real test.
0: Phoebe, I am appreciative. Lauren, I'm appreciative that, that you both were able to regale us with that. I hope it was not too traumatic or triggering, but a, a wild story nonetheless. Uh, I wish you both nothing but uh, healthy, happy, successful endeavors as you all take Criminal on the road again this year. Happy 10th birthday to Criminal, the well-known... Locally born, true crime podcast with a national following, uh, Lawrence Ford and Phoebe Judge. Thanks for the stories and thanks for being our guests here on Do South. You're listening to Do South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi and I'm Leonida Inge. We're talking about self care today and about exploring new ways to decrease stress, and achieve great mental clarity. I hear that one way to do that
4: is with sound therapy. Do you know much about that? I do not. Mm, Me either. Fortunately, we have someone here in the studio today who can help us with that. L.A. Atkins is a licensed clinical social worker and the founding owner of Reconnect With You, LLC in Durham. L.A., welcome to Do South
5: thank you thank you so much
4: you know let's see so what exactly is sound therapy and how does it work because i think i need it i don't know what it is but i think i need it
5: so sound therapy is a very healing and meditative wellness practice and it uses the sounds of acoustic instruments some of which i've brought here today and um also the voice, which is the most powerful and accessible instrument that we have to really help all those present to connect with their mind and their bodies. And it's really a mindfulness exercise, is one of the most simple ways that I like to describe it, because while folks are participating in a sound bath, I am also asking them, to observe themselves, Mm -hmm. to see what they notice in terms of any thoughts that might be coming up for them, anything that is happening within their bodies, and also tuning into what it is that they feel like they need during that time. It really is a restful practice as well. And one of the things that I love most about sound therapy and when I hold space for sound baths is I tell folks, I don't need anything from you while you're here. All I need you to do is just show up. I usually have extra yoga mats, and so I have yoga mats set up for everyone. But all I ask is that the people that are there is that they're open to the experience and that they are willing to notice what the experience has to offer them.
0: What are some of the benefits of sound therapy, sound baths?
5: Yes. So I before I respond about the benefits, okay. I'm aware that we we're saying sound therapy and then sound yeah, bath. Oh. Get us right on the line. So I want I want to name that okay. it's called a sound bath because the body is really absorbing the sounds that are in the environment and it can feel like a washing over of the body, which is similar to a bath. And so Sometimes I use sound therapy session and sound bath interchangeably.
0: But to be clear, no water.
5: There is no water. Right. <laughs>
0: Thank you. It's a good clarification.
5: I I actually had a. That means fellow, we can
0: do it in the
4: studio.
5: Yeah, I had a fellow sound therapist say that someone showed up in uh, in <laughs> swim gear because they thought that there was going to be water. <laughs> I
0: would do that. That would be me. But there,
5: but there is no water there is an instrument that I have that's called an, an ocean drum that I don't have here here with me today but it does mimic the sounds of ocean waves but there is no actual water at the sound bath but there are a lot of different benefits to the practice of sound therapy the number one feedback that I've gotten from folks in that have participated in my sound baths are that is they experience a very deep sense of calm and relaxation I have also had people fall asleep during my sound baths, which is a very appropriate response. Sometimes that is the body telling us what it is that we need. And sometimes it can also be that there are thoughts that we're having or or memories that are coming up that we're just not ready to deal with. And so the body checks out energetically in a way. But a deep sense of calm and relaxation is one of the benefits. Another benefit that I have experienced in participating in a sound bath and that I've gotten feedback on is really inspiring creativity. So I've had folks come to my sound baths. I hold space for a lot of creatives and entrepreneurs and also fellow therapists. And I've had folks come to my sound baths and say, oh, I've been struggling with this business idea or I'm working on a project and I am unsure about my way forward. And at the end, in our debriefing, as they're sharing out, they'll say, "I know what I need to do now," or "I have some new ideas, some new creative ideas," and so really inspiring creativity is another benefit of the practice. That's what
4: we need, Jeff.
0: Wait, you think so? Oh I think that'll goodness. get us there. <laughs> <laughs>
5: we need that for due south
4: perfect
0: i've got maybe a throwaway here i just want to remind listeners if you're just joining us la adkins is a licensed clinical social worker and the founding owner of reconnect with you llc in durham we're talking about sound baths so you're talking about some of the people that do come see you maybe a loaded question here who ought to come see you
5: that is a great question so i like to think that Anyone can show up to a sound bath. Going back to something that I said earlier, I do think openness to the experience is very important. I have not yet had anyone show up to a sound bath that didn't want to be there or that wasn't at the very least curious about the experience. And so I would say anyone can show up to a sound bath. In terms of some, if I can identify some pain points for Mm -hmm. folks, I think that. Because sound therapy, it is a wellness experience. It is a it is a very calming place to be. I think if you're experiencing stress, it's great for stress relief, especially since all you have to do is show up. And so if you are experiencing high stress, if you are having difficulty with taking some time out for yourself due to busyness, due mm-hmm. to being focused on productivity... A sound bath is great, once again, because it is focused on just you and you taking care of yourself. And there's not necessarily anything that you need to do while you're there. And so the process is not about doing, it's about being, really being present with yourself and whatever it is that's happening around you. And so if you feel like you can benefit from taking some time out for yourself, that is also Another sign to you that you should consider showing up for a sound bath.
4: So, what what kinds of instruments that you you do you use for this therapy?
5: So, I have a lot of different instruments. I have, I think, over twenty five instruments now. Some of those well, look pretty well, heavy. What did
4: yeah. what, you, you bring <laughs> wow. in today?
0: These, are, this looks like you know, looks like a giant like bowl for beat tortilla chips, sure. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a
5: big wooden something. I yeah. So, this is actually a gemstone crystal infused singing bowl and so this is made of the quartz crystal okay and it is glass so it's very fragile and so this is a singing bowl these are what I like to call the star of the show and so whenever I have all of my instruments set up I let folks hear the instruments before the experience gets started because most of the time there are people present that have never been to a sound bath before. And it can be very jarring if you're mm. sitting with your eyes closed and you start to hear all of these unfamiliar sure. sounds. And so I do let the, I do play all of my instruments Ahead of I time. think we're ready. Uh, We've I,
4: never been to a sound bath. We have we. not.
0: My only request here is if you're listening and if you're not driving a car <laughs> and you're able to close your eyes, please close your eyes. We're going to close our eyes. Okay. If that's and you you give us a demonstration. If that's, yeah.
5: Yeah. So right, I I'm also my eyes. before we get started, I want okay, to share. My yeah, I want to share with y'all. I also brought us, a chime. Yes. So I wanted to just bring okay. a couple of different types of instruments, and so this is a lighter sound, not as fragile, um, but also very calming. And so I am. Should we close? Should we close sure. our eyes or not? He wants to get I, away. <laughs> I've been so trying to get away
0: for a while.
5: <laughs> I, I invite you now to just get into okay. a position that is comfortable for you. You can close your eyes or find a soft gaze somewhere around you. And I am going to strike my bow. and i invite you to practice gratitude for this moment remind yourself that you can always feel safe in your body wherever you are that you are divinely protected And that you can ground yourself anytime you need to, wherever you are. And I will end with the light sounds of this Wind chime. Thank you for joining me in what I like to call a, m- a mindful was- minute. Wow, Ellie, you got me I out of the refer- studio. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I left. I, I got to laugh for a moment. Where do these instruments come from? Do you make any of them? Do you modify them? Like, well, what's the backstory for one or two of them?
5: I do not make them. I actually have gotten all of the instruments that I have, and I am a few of them were gifted to me from a fellow colleague and a, who's also who also does sound therapy. But I actually went to Skinny Beat Sound Shop in Asheville. Who I found through a Google search, and I drove the three hours because I had been looking to visit Asheville. And coming to find out, the owner is also from Wisconsin. <laughs> and so that was a divine timing for me, or, or a divine message, I, s- I should say, that I was in the right place. And so I got, I've gotten all of my instruments, and including my first singing bowls from Skinny Beat Sound Shop from Billy in, in Asheville. I do not modify any of them. I do have a relationship with all of my instruments, and I make sure that I cleanse them. And by having a relationship with them, I mean spending time with them, um, playing them, connecting with them. And so I also do some sound therapy at home with myself um, where I'm able to kind of sit with myself and play my instruments. You know, you
4: just kicked off a monthly sound bath series, you know, the Sound Sanctuary. Tell me about that.
5: Yes. So we just had our first session this past Sunday, and the theme was embracing change and transition while also navigating loss and grief. So I have held space for almost 600 folks to date in sound baths and have almost facilitated 50 sound baths, and after every session, people ask me, well, is there a regular offering that you have? And so I wanted to start the sound sanctuary because I wanted to hold space for folks more regularly and really start to build a sense of community around my sound baths. And when I think of sanctuary, when I think of what that word means for me, it really means having access to a safe space, a sacred space, And also really being able to bring people together around different themes. And so I hold that, The Sound Sanctuary, monthly. And I'll be holding the next session um, in February on the 25th. And our theme this month will be around being a mindful creative and a mindful entrepreneur.
4: Well, I've been learning about mindfulness and uh, practicing it off and on when I'm forced to, you know, you know, for many for many years now, for at least ten years. But are you seeing your clientele grow um, because people have experienced this? So now they want more. Maybe they didn't even know they needed it. So I wonder who um, who would be your I can't say your perfect client, but the, who who will benefit the most? You know, from what you do.
5: I think those who are open to the experience. I have a lot of returning folks, so I have people who have been to several of my sound baths, and so every time I put something out, they want to show up. And then I also have a lot of people show up just from word of mouth, like, Mm -hmm. oh, my friend told me about your sound bath, or I saw your sound bath on Facebook, or whatever the case. So I think people who are really looking to add something else to their toolbox in terms of their self-care and wellness and well-being. I think that the space that I create is perfect for them. So my unique facilitation style is really rooted in compassion and acceptance. Yeah. And so in addition to me not needing anything from the folks that show up, I am also sharing that you there is no judgment here in this space. That I don't have any expectations of you while you're here other than for you to be your true and authentic self to the extent that you feel comfortable.
0: How long is a sound bath and how much does it cost if I wanted to come get one this weekend?
5: So a typical sound bath can be anywhere from 45 minutes to 90 minutes long. If it's anything less than 45 minutes, it's um, more of a mini, what I call a mini sound bath. In terms of how uh, much they cost, they can vary depending on the sound therapist or the facilitator, but also what else is being included as a part of the experience. So my offerings are pretty unique in that I kind of bring together my public speaking with my experience as a sound therapy. So you get kind of a mini talk um along with a sound bath, and then you also have some tips and strategies that you can walk away with, tangible things that you can start to incorporate in your life. In terms of the ticket price for, I know the tickets for the Sound Sanctuary are $40, um, but my tickets have ranged anywhere from $30 to $40 for individual sessions. I also, throughout the year, I will hold donation-based sessions, which... I invite folks to bring a love offering, and sometimes a love offering is your presence. Um, And so I like to do that just to increase access to folks who may not be able to purchase an individual ticket for other offerings.
4: Well, thank you so much, L.A. Atkins, for being here. L.A. Atkins is a licensed clinical social worker and the founding owner of Reconnect With You LLC in Durham.
5: You're very welcome. I feel
4: better. How about you, Chad? I feel, I feel relaxed.
0: There's less <laughs> tension in my neck and my shoulders. So thank you.
5: Yeah. Peace.
4: Due South is a production of WUNC and a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Quilla. Jeff DeBerry is my co-host, and I'm Leonita Inge.